At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, September 12th, 2016 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Turns out that Hillary Clinton has the jaw-dropping temerity to think that germs do not apply to her. So she gets pneumonia. What? The rest of us can also get pneumonia? How does this work? I'm, I'm incensed. All right. Obviously, Hillary Clinton is sick. This plays into a lot of existing conspiracy theories that she is a human being on this planet, able to get sick. But here's the thing I don't understand. For whom is this a game changer, electorally speaking? I'm seeing a lot of conservatives saying, see, see, I told you so. How is this going to help? How does the fact that Hillary Clinton is sick now, let's even extrapolate it. And let's say, you're right, you're right. She's been in ill health and trying to cover it up. It would seem to me that the only way this is going to move a voter from the Democrat to the Republican camp is if the voter thinks this. One, I really, really hate Trump. Two, I hate Hillary, but I hate her a little less than Trump. I guess you could also say I like Hillary more than Trump, but we know that that's not going on. So it's someone who doesn't like Hillary, but really doesn't like Trump. But the possibility of Hillary getting sick, maybe even dying in office and giving way to a Tim Kaine presidency. Oh, that's the deal breaker. So it's got to be someone whose ranking is Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, and then in third, Tim Kaine. Kaine has got to be worse than Trump and Hillary, because if Kaine were as good as Hillary, then it wouldn't lose any votes, Hillary being sick. Maybe I'm going to say that logic doesn't apply because this whole election we've been hearing, well, you know, we hear over and over the least popular candidates ever. A new Washington Post poll shows the unfavorable numbers for Clinton and Trump are at historic highs. Mrs. Clinton's unfavorable rating increasing to 56 percent among all adults. That's up six percentage points in three weeks. Sixty three percent of that group have an unfavorable view of Donald Trump. And so I was thinking about this. I have not seen. In this whole election, any reporter standing on the street corner of a main street anywhere or just going to a rally anywhere and finding a person who said this, yeah, you know, I kind of like them both. I like I like them pretty much equally. They're both good. Everyone is like her unfavorables are high, his are higher or his are high. Hers are just a little lower. Whoever has the least bad unfavorables. But we are a nation of 320 million people. There's got to be someone for whom they're both they're both favorable. I like them both. 
And I was thinking, it's very hard in this media landscape to have a little niche. You know, I was watching some Judge Jeanine Pirro yelling about Hillary Clinton. That's easy. Anyone could do that. Or I'm kind of surrounded like a lot of these uh, Daily Coast or these websites. Everything Hillary does is fantastic. Baskets of deplorables, that'll work in her favor. Her getting sick, that shows she's human. You know, no matter what she does is great. So it's really hard to have a niche. I go on some of the shows. You know, mostly I say anti-Trump things. I actually like Hillary more than most people do. But I think I now I found my, my niche. I'm the guy who likes them both. Book me on your show and I'll tell you what's good about both of them. Yeah. You know, she's got a lot of experience, but he's he's really charismatic. She's not that funny. He's pretty funny. He's, he's good at rallies. He's good with the crowds. She's good in the boardroom. They're kind of a dream ticket. All I'm saying is right now in 2016, America can't lose. I like them both. I just like them both. I'm the person who likes them both. Have If you want to have an anti-Trump guy, I will debate you. I like that guy. But you want to have an anti-Hillary guy? Nah, I like her. I like them both. We're a country of 320 million people. I really think there's no one who likes them both. On the show today, two people, and I got to tell you, I like both these people. One is Ken Stern. He used to run NPR. And the other is Stacey Palmer, who is the editor of the Chronicle of Philanthropy. And what we were talking about is the Clinton Foundation as a test case for can you give to a charity for reasons other than the altruistic? Also, can a charity really use politics in a, want to call it cynical, fine, cynical way, but to actually help the world. So Ken Stern, who we should disclose, and he wanted disclosed, has done some work affiliated with the Clinton Foundation, is more, I would say, idealistic. You should give to charities because charities do good, and doing good is all well and good for charities. And then Stacey Palmer kind of says people give to charities for all sorts of reasons, and I think she's a lot more pro-Clinton Foundation, a one-two on this issue. Ken Stern is the co-founder and president of Palisades Media Ventures. He is also a veteran of the nonprofit world, having led such companies as uh, National Public Radio. He was CEO, and though he did not hire me, he also did not fire me, and that is an important <laughs> thing. He is also the author of With Charity for All, Why Charities Are Failing and a Better Way to Give. Hello, Ken, and thank you. Thanks, Mike, for having me on the show. Yeah, not just for joining me, but for not firing me all those times when I'm sure you had cause. It's still giving, so it's great. (laughs) That's right, yes, it's still considered a nonprofit. So in many worlds where the public has to make a discernment about things that go on in private or quasi-private, I'm thinking of the world of finance or the world of sports or the world of uh, politics, there's the idea of the show horse and the workhorse. And the show horse is the one that people know about, but maybe just blustery and good at getting attention. And the work course maybe behind the scenes is the clinton or the clinton charities the clinton foundation the clinton global initiative would you characterize them as more of a show horse or more of a workhorse type charity so uh, i think uh, let's actually start with the structure of the clinton foundation um, which is actually about seven large programs stitched together uh, some of them are definitely for show. The annual conference that Bill Clinton hosts and the Clinton Foundation hosts in uh, New York, the Clinton Global Initiative, it is about the show, uh, and it brings people in from the world. But they also have uh, programs that really run their health initiatives, actually very much a working initiative with, I think, several thousand people working in Africa. So they do a little bit of both. 
people in your world or people in the world of nonprofits, they definitely have opinions about which are the really gold-plated charities, which are the ones that could be better. What is the reputation of the uh, Clinton Foundation? The Clinton Foundation is different than any other charity because it is so much wrapped up in the persona of Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton and Chelsea Clinton uh, that so much of the view of them is really more about politics than it is about charity. The Clinton Foundation would not exist at the scale that it does without the thousand wattage um, reputation uh, of Bill Clinton. There just wouldn't exist in any of the ways. It would not be a $200 million a year charity or whatever it is without his persona to bring people together. And whether that is the best use of that $200 million, uh, that's for people to argue, but it wouldn't exist without him uh, um, and his celebrity. The motivation for people to give, uh, perhaps it's assumed the answer is altruism, but you've been in those meetings, you've raised money. What is the motivation? And if the motivation is something like being impressed with celebrity or even access to a fav- famous person, is that an inherently problematic thing? The psychology of giving is is actually fascinating, and there's a lot of study on it, and very little of giving has to do with what the Supreme Court calls detached and disinterested generosity. It has to do with self-perceptions, feeling self-worth, the pleasure of giving, who you know, um, uh, uh, who your friends give to, uh, who has the big events, uh, who you want to know. I mean, people give to the opera largely because of who else is giving to the opera and who you can hang out with. Uh, So there's a lot of different things that go into uh, giving. Very little of it has to do with pure altruism. It's mixed in, but there's really a river of mixed motivations, and it's not at all different with the Clinton Foundation, except, again, for scale. Is that bad? Yeah, I think it is bad. Uh, Again, unrelated to the Clinton Foundation, I think it's bad because it means the money, this roughly $350 billion that individuals give every year to charities in the country, doesn't necessarily go to the most effective charities because people aren't asking themselves what charity has really demonstrated the most effective. They're asking themselves, who's got the best reputation? Who have I heard of? Who do my friends give to? Who can I hang out with? And that changes and, to my view, uh, warps the entire economy of the charitable world. Would you say you're an idealist on this issue? I would say I'm a realist on the issue. It is a business. Could be a lot better, but American charities still do extraordinary things. In feminist theory, there is this idea of the male gaze, which is that even if we don't think about it, the whole world, we look through the world as if everyone's a man looking through the world. Um, It's just our default setting. And I think in news coverage, there's a political gaze, which is you look at this question and people who seem to be uh, reasonable people say, well, I think it's bad optics. And so the the Clintons should divorce themselves from the working of the foundation so it doesn't even raise questions. But if we were looking at it through the charity gaze or through the improving the world gaze, I would think that there would be a different calculation. And to say, let's throw away the good work for the idea of our political opponents attacking us in terms of optics seems to be a bizarre calculation to me. But what do you think of that? I guess I take a fairly jaundiced view as to uh, the charitable sector. And it starts with the notion that there are too many charities to begin with. Money, which is largely fixed, is spread too thinly over too many charities, and they can't scale. Uh, And that's a real problem for the effectiveness of our charitable system. So if you tell me that one charity is going to go out of business for whatever reason, uh, mostly I'll say good. It sounds kind of heartless, 
Um, and it really isn't a comment on the Clintons and whether they should stop doing what they're doing. But the notion of consolidation and efficiency and collaboration within the charitable sector is a good thing, in my view. And so, you know, if the Clinton Foundation goes out of business, they can certainly transfer their resources and their programming to other organizations who are equally competent, uh, and it wouldn't be a bad thing for the people they serve. All right. I'm going to pitch you an idea. It's called the Charity Assassin, and it's a charity where you give to it, and all it does is eliminate superfluous charities, and the world's a better place. Uh, brilliant. Brilliant, Mike. Brilliant. <laughs> and that is called bludgeoning the witness to agree with you. <laughs> Ken Stern, former CEO of uh, NPR, author of With Charity for All, Why Charities Are Failing and a Better Way to Give. Thanks a lot, Ken. Thanks for having me, Mike. So joining me now is the editor of the Chronicle of Philanthropy, Stacy Palmer. Hello, Stacy. Hello. And I have to say, on your webpage, your areas of expertise are a veritable thesaurus of synonyms for philanthropy. There is charitable giving, fundraising, nonprofit sector, volunteerism, national service. I'm glad you are an expert in all these things. You're exactly the kind of person I need to talk to. Terrific to join you. <laughs> okay. So in Various walks of life, like politics, there is this notion that some politicians are show horses and some politicians are workhorses. And this is a little reductive. There can be overlap. But, you know, notions like this exist in other fields. And I was wondering, in the world of philanthropy, is the Clinton Foundation seen as more for show or a real workhorse, really doing real important ph philanthropic work on the ground? I think it's one of those cases where it's both, but lost in a lot of the debate that's been going on about influence peddling and all of those very legitimate and important questions is the fact that it is seen as a nonprofit that does very good work and is dealing with very many problems in the world that nobody else was paying attention to and that it is getting good results and spending its money very efficiently. So there are a lot of things that you look at at philanthropy and the biggest question is, is what they're doing working? And all the evidence suggests that many of the programs that the Clinton Foundation supports are indeed doing good. So, I mean, if I talk to a lawyer and a friend told me I'm going from this law firm to that law firm and we were both lawyers, we'd kind of either roll our eyes at where the person was going <laughs> or we'd say, oh, you know, good step up. I'm a journalist. It's the same thing. What about in your world? Hey, I'm going to be working at the Clinton Foundation. What do you think of that? I think people are very excited because the Clinton Foundation moves at a faster pace than the rest of philanthropy. Um, and so people who really want to get things done, like the idea of working at an organization that both is going to move fast, has lots of ideas and interests, and has access to a lot of money. Because certainly the challenge for most people in philanthropy is that there just isn't enough money to go around to solve all the problems that need solving. So do you subscribe to the notion that one new philanthropy doesn't change the amount of giving that all you're doing is, you know, battling for essentially pieces of us never expanding pie? A really unfortunate thing about philanthropy is that it's always been about 2% of the nation's GDP, and no matter how many people go into fundraising and how many nonprofits there are, it just doesn't budge. And one of the things that I think everybody is looking for is what would it take to get to 3% of giving of GDP, because that's what would make a true difference in the world. But it is a fairly fixed pie when the economy does better. There's more money to give, but our percentages aren't, aren't growing that much. So the Clinton Foundation by itself, the giving pledge that Bill Gates and 
Warren Buffett promote, those things, you know, they aren't changing the overall amount of money that's being given in a giant way. Mm. So I have seen a couple of uh, organizations that give grades or rankings to how well foundations spend their money. And from what I understand, the Clinton Foundation does pretty well by these metrics, like the American Institute of Philanthropy Charity Watch um, gives them an A. And then there's Charity Navigator, which gave them high grades, although that has been caught up in some criticism because Charity Navigator apparently did some work with the Clinton Foundation. But from where you sit, um, what should we think of these the grades that have been given in these organizations? that give grades? Charity Watch is an especially tough grader, so to be doing well with them is a real sign because they look very extensively at the Clinton Foundation's books before they make a determination of whether they've really passed muster. So that is really kind of the gold star. Charity Navigator is another important measure. And we have to remember that those groups are looking at is the organization efficient in its spending? What percentage of dollars are going into programs? That kind of thing. It's not looking at what is the quality of the work and are they doing good work. There aren't really great watchdogs that spend a lot of time on that, and yet that's the most important question. Right. Although it can be disqualifying if overhead is eating up like sixty percent of your exactly. costs. Whereas exactly. it's twelve so percent. Know with is Clintons, that yeah. Clinton Foundation doesn't have any problems with that. And you know, I think one of the things that's important to remember: not only are they efficient what they're spending. There isn't any, there are the influence questions, but it's not, you know, they're not getting paid $500,000 salaries out of the foundation or anything like that. Yeah. Are there instances where bringing to bear political astuteness, which obviously Bill Clinton has, actually helps the working of the foundation. I think about, for instance, the programs eradicating diseases in Africa. It seems to me that there's some political massaging that goes on, that someone with connections can reach out to, say, drug companies and say, don't worry, your generics won't lose value if we use them in sub-Saharan Africa. Is that a fair thing to say about the Clinton Foundation or more like, you know, something that the foundation itself would say to justify their existence? The influence part is hugely important. You have to have that political knowledge and the connections that Bill Clinton has and just his power of persuasion of bringing people together. That is what has made the difference in their effectiveness and the reason that they have been able to solve some of these really naughty problems. The drug area is a particular area where they've had success, and you see a great amount of concern among people dealing with diseases like AIDS being very worried about what happens if they move out of and have to shut down those programs. So clearly you need some politics. You need somebody who can bring parties together. And, you know, it's a good thing where politics is involved in that case. Sometimes philanthropy shuns politics a little too much. Yeah, and I've heard the idea. Hey, why doesn't the Clinton Foundation, it's such a headache, the optics are bad. Why don't they just fold or give all their money to the Red Cross or become a subsidiary of uh, some other established organization? What's the argument against that? There are a lot of people who can't get past the influence question and the problems of perception. And so if you're in that camp, then you have to argue that the Clinton Foundation should close or be transferred. But if you can get past that and say, are they doing good work that needs to continue in some kind of way, then you have to say it's really important that they find some way to transfer the programs or do something should Hillary win to be able to continue that work. I I think the philanthropy world would feel a great loss if 
the Clinton Foundation went away. And one of the things that they've been important in doing is bringing lots of wealthy people together to think about good works and especially to get young people involved. They have a program for university students. When you go to the Clinton Global Initiative, you see lots of families together, you know, really educating young people about their responsibilities to the world. Those are the kinds of intangibles that would be lost if there is no foundation. Yeah. And when people say the Clinton Foundation should, you know, shut down or overhaul how it does business or substantially uh, stop this if uh, Hillary Clinton is elected president, you know, that's usually set on political shows or through the lens of politics. But I think if instead of uh, let's talk politics today, it's let's talk charity today. I don't know. It doesn't seem like anyone would be saying that. And it seems like it's almost a little selfish to say, yeah, well, it's helping a few million people in Africa. But what about the optics of a potential American political race? I think there are, though, a lot of people in philanthropy who are very bothered by the optics and by the perception that philanthropy is about influence peddling. And so there are just as many opponents of the Clinton Foundation in the philanthropic world um, as there are in the rest of the world. And it really just depends on you know, your view of government and engagement of politicians and perception. But if you look purely on the merits of are they doing good work, it's clear that the Clinton Foundation needs to continue operating. The Clintons would put forth an argument or the people strongly back the foundation that there, of course, there are all sorts of people throughout the world who would like to either shake the Clintons' hands or maybe influence them or get to know them or impress them or whatever. But if you back the foundation, you would say, great, so let's use that impulse towards good works. Whereas the detractors would say, philanthropy should more be motivated by altruism. Do you have any thoughts on that argument? Yeah, when you look at the history of philanthropy in this country, it's always been a lot of mixed motivations. I mean, look at Carnegie and Rockefeller who had images that they needed to cleanse because they were considered robber barons, and they started the philanthropies that we now look today as being very pure and all about altruism. But it wasn't just altruism that motivated them to give. There would be no philanthropy if there weren't people who needed in some ways to cleanse their images. And it's a judgment part on the recipient side as to whether it bothers you so much how the money was made or under what circumstances people were encouraged to give. And some groups reject money. They rejected money from tobacco companies when they were giving very generously. That's a fair point of view is to say, I don't like the source of it and I don't like the motivations. Or you can say, isn't it better that we get all this money to do good? It leads people to think about philanthropy in a big way and probably give to causes other than the Clinton Foundation. And isn't that the greater good? Has any part of this coverage bothered you as someone who cares a lot about philanthropy bothered you just as far as taking philanthropy for granted? You know, blanket phrases like, well, of course, they do good work in the world, but let's quickly move past that and discuss the politics. The fact that people aren't asking the question more about what results do they get and are they doing any good in the world and then drawing a conclusion about whether it's appropriate or not, you just don't see that in the coverage. It's very selective. And I think there is a lack of understanding of how philanthropy works and how important it is and how under-resourced it is and why Bill Clinton did a very good thing for the world when he decided that he wanted to raise money from other wealthy people and encourage them to find ways to do good. It is like the giving pledge that Bill and Melinda Gates are pushing, that's encouraging the billionaires to give. Bill's probably reaching out more to the millionaires, and 
if more of them gave more generously, then we'll start getting to much bigger dollars in this country being spent on good work. Well, Bill Clinton's a man of the people, the millionaires, not the billionaires. Come on. Exactly. Come <laughs> <Call> touch. <laughs> Stacey Palmer is editor of the Chronicle of Philanthropy. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. And now the spiel. September 12th, today is a time to look back on September 11th yesterday, which was a time to look back on September 11th of 2001. It's refracted through a refraction, but still some things stand out. I was in New York at the time, so I remember the smell. It was ubiquitous. I remember the sight on every corner and every lamppost, pictures of the missing. They would never be found. I remember hearing assertions that seemed reasonable that there were maybe a hundred Al-Qaeda sleeper cells in America and over the next months we could expect terrorist attack after terrorist attack. All of these impressions were strong. Some lingered, some were reasonable, all wound up dissipating in time. So too with our remembrance of Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani was making the 9-11 remembrance rounds yesterday. Once America's mayor, currently Trump's most throaty surrogate. He's a current declaimer of the most ridiculous statements in the service of his longtime real estate developer friend. Vote for Donald Trump for a safer America and for an America headed in a different direction. Greatness! What happened? What happened to the man we called America's mayor? The question goes. The man who counseled the country so ably in the days after 9-11, for whom it seemed as though his personal theme song was Amazing Grace as played on bagpipes. He went to so many first responder funerals. He, he gave away the daughter of a fireman or a policeman at her wedding because her father was killed on 9-11 so many times. What happened? Politico asks, is Rudy Giuliani losing his mind? The New York Times frets for Rudy Giuliani, embrace of Donald Trump, puts legacy at risk. The casual TV viewer doesn't necessarily need that framing. They just know what they see and hear, and they're hearing Rudy saying things like this. I ran the largest and best police department in the world, the New York City Police Department, and I saved more black lives than any, any of those people you, you saw on stage by reducing crime and particularly homicide by 75 percent. So does that offend you seeing of which, those images? Of which uh, maybe four or 5,000 were African-American young people who are alive today because of the policies I put in effect that weren't in effect for 35 years. The analysis of Giuliani as now deranged or really even as much changed depends on a few things. First, let us acknowledge that he does say deranged things. Here he is on ABC's This Week Yesterday. Donald Trump also said on Thursday night again is that we should have taken the oil of Iraq. Even if you could do that practically, and most experts say you couldn't, wouldn't that just be theft? Well, no, no. I, I, he, he said take it so that the Islamic State then would not have had it available. But he said leave a force back there and take it. No. Leave a force back there and take it and make sure it's distributed in a proper way. And basically. That's not legal, is it? Of course it's legal. It's a war. <laughs> Until the war is over, anything's legal. So there is that. 
But the characterization mostly depends on two false notions. One is you've got to rely on a cartoon version of what Giuliani's reputation really was like as mayor. And the other thing is just a misunderstanding of human nature. So as mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani had bonafide accomplishments. I voted for him in 1997. I would have voted for him had I lived in New York in 1993. And I think those are good votes. We forget just how bad the city was. And even to this day, we don't always give Giuliani credit for what he did. He didn't single-handedly bring down crime, but he brought down crime. He wasn't the only mayor who combated crime. It dropped nationally, but the drop was longer and much more precipitous in New York City than in comparable cities. But other than with crime, it wasn't a great record because the things that helped Giuliani fight bad guys also saw him fighting some pretty good guys. He's pugnacious, pious, and persnickety. Couple things that happened, maybe you forgot. His wife found out that Rudy Giuliani was divorcing her when he announced it in a press conference in Bryant Park. His lawyer then said she squealed like a stuck pig. A caller to his radio show, you know, mayors have radio shows, I'm here to help the common guy. So the caller complains about cops. He finds out who the caller is. He sends the police to arrest this guy and he reads out the guy's juvenile record and says that the guy was once convicted of sodomy. The charges didn't stick. The juvenile record should have been kept sealed. And the sodomy thing was a total invention. You know, Housing Works, the charity Housing Works, they protested Giuliani's plan to eliminate the city's division of AIDS services. So when 100 Housing Works protesters had a march near City Hall, he stations snipers on the roof of City Hall. He fills the air with helicopter. It's a buttress against 100 anti-AIDS activists, housing work workers. He kills $6 million worth of city contracts with the charity group in a fit of peak. Cops could do no wrong in the eyes of Rudy Giuliani. Once an undercover cop killed a security guard named Patrick Dorisman. They got in a fight. He uh, thought he was a drug dealer. Dorisman is killed. Giuliani goes and says, well, you know, Dorisman's no altar boy. Dorisman turns out to have been an altar boy. Giuliani once egged on a drunken police benevolent association rally. They were waving racist placards against the city's first black mayor, David Dinkins. The cops in the rally get so out of hand, they rush through barricades, they storm City Hall, and they spill out onto the Brooklyn Bridge, and they stop traffic. This is all as Giuliani is giving a speech calling Dinkins' policies bullshit. The policy, by the way, was a civilian complaint review board. Rudy says at the time, one of the reasons those police officers might have lost control is that we have a mayor who invites riots. So Rudy was and continues to be harsh, brash, angry, defiant. The difference now is that his targets aren't figures in city politics. His targets are national or even intergalactic, as is the case with Beyonce. I thought it was really outrageous that uh, that she used it as a platform to attack police officers who are the people who protect her and protect us and keep us alive. And what we should be doing in the African-American community and all communities is build up respect for police officers. Now, the clip you just heard was Rudy on Fox and Friends, and it demonstrates my thesis. Rudy hasn't become more deranged. He hasn't become less moored from his true nature. He's not, by DNA, a pragmatic moderate. He is a guy, like so many of us, who knows how to speak to his audience. Rudy Giuliani hasn't changed his stripes or his convictions. 
He's just switched his constituencies. He used to govern a city that was temperamentally and politically more liberal than he was. But he was a good prosecutor. He knew how to marshal facts and how to make arguments. He knew that juries would find his arguments compelling. And as mayor, he did this. He saw his audience, New Yorkers. He gave them what he wanted. And he made the right arguments tailored to his audience. It is, by the way, just another example of the civilizing influence of New York City. But now, Rudy Giuliani has a vastly different audience. It's Fox viewers, it's Trump supporters, it's conservative talk radio listeners. Just as right after 9-11, he knew that the tone required was calm and reassuring, he intuits now that his audience wants red meat, the unsupported insinuation, the overheated rhetoric. He is a showman, a performer, and an egotist, same as he has always been. He likes picking a fight, same as he always has. And he evinces zero self-doubt, the same as it's always been. Some of these traits, if you're making a decent case up against big odds, that can be a virtue. But now it's all a vice. The legacy of Rudy Giuliani should not be seen as tarnished, more like revealed. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube is a Skippy and Jif together in the same jar kind of guy. Mary Wilson, Coke and Pepsi, same glass, maybe with a splash of RC. She likes them all. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, likes tigers, likes sharks, and the best, tiger sharks. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, Asked to name his favorite Beatle, well, four-way tie for second place between John Paul, George, and Ringo. Number one, Stu Sutcliffe. The gist, gay rights and Chick-fil-A. We like them both. It's a conundrum. Umperu de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening. I just happen to like them both, is what I'm saying. I like they're both good. I think they're both good. Are they both very good? Yes, I think they're both very good. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've been paying attention to the issues and they're both good.